Lasso. This morning we begin the cycle once again of settling the mind in its natural state. We'll circle into it, so to speak, like an airplane approaching an airport but having to first go in a holding pattern and then land. So we will circle around through the field of vision, of hearing, of tactile sensations, and then down on the landing strip of the field of the mind. In each case, following the Buddha's injunction to Bahia, in the seen, let there be just the seen, and the heard, just the heard, the felt, just the felt, the mentally perceived, just the mentally perceived. In other words, just take it straight with as little overlay as possible, with zero interpretation, zero labeling, classification, categorization. Just try to be as naked, as bare, as unmediated as you possibly can. I believe, although I'm certainly no expert here, uh, in phenomenology this is called epoche, epoche, where there is a temporary suspension of judgment, not in the sense of lack of discernment, it's just being totally present with whatever is manifesting in that moment and letting it speak to you as if you're listening to, try to imagine this, as if you're listening to a really fascinating person and being silent. Because what the person is saying is so interesting, you just don't want to interrupt. You don't want to get caught up in your own thoughts. You're like hanging on every syllable. It's just so fascinating. Or it could be music and so forth. So reality is speaking to you. Reality is dishing up one appearance after another. And it's every moment is unprecedented. It's fresh. So hang on its every syllable in this practice of just settling your mind without distraction, without grasping, without the grasping is without any overlay. Now, are there times for really bringing in our full background, our richness of understanding, of, of scholarship, of learning, of wisdom, and so forth, to really discern and carefully distinguish this is virtue, this is non-virtue, this how this is arose, this how this arose. Look at the causal nexus of phenomena arising in the mind and so forth? The answer is absolutely yes. That is, for example, citta sarpetana. When we venture into, into vipassana, we're going way beyond bare attention. Bare attention just cracks the door open. But then we bring in our learning, the learning from hearing, the learning from thinking, excuse me, the wisdom from hearing, the wisdom from thinking, the wisdom of meditation. We bring in the richness of theory to illuminate experience, and we pose questions. What are the factors of origination? What are the factors of dissolution? So there, it's really a probing for insight in the quest of discovery. But right now, in this practice, the shamatha practice of settling the mind into natural state, it's not explicitly one of inquiry, of probing into. It is simply one of being simply present without distraction, without grasping. So, it's a good training. And there's a microcosm. I like jumping out to the macrocosm, and I'll do so briefly. And that is a very poignant question, very, very relevant question, especially nowadays with the multiplicity of all the worldviews to which we have access, the many spiritual traditions, materialistic traditions, and so forth. One can ask the question, well, if I approach Buddhist teachings, if I want to venture into Buddhist practice, um, What's required of me? Do I first need to believe that Buddha is omniscient? Do I have to first believe reincarnation, karma? Believe in nirvana? Do I have to believe in Buddha nature? Uh, six realms? What do I have to believe in? Okay, wh wh what do you need? What makes me qualified? 
And there is an answer to that. It's a very authoritative answer. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Glenn or Apasan, but I believe it's from the 400, the, the 400 stanzas by Ariadela, when he addresses it explicitly and he gives just three qualities of a qualified student, one who is really worthy to be accepted as a student and to launch full-fledged into the practice. Loden zurne dunyerwe. Those three qualities. Loden, perceptive. Doesn't mean you have to be brilliant, but it means that if you're receiving teachings, you're perceptive enough, intelligent enough to understand what the teachings are. Yeah? But it's not just understanding, then you must think about them. You must really understand them. What he said, introspection is this, but now what does that mean? And you're relating, oh, this is, this is introspection. When I'm doing this and I'm monitoring this thing, so you're connecting it with your own experience. First, you're learning about Buddhism, like learning about Greek history. It's something else. And that's the understanding you get from hearing. What, what is the Buddhist teachings? What's Galupa teachings? What's Zen and so forth? It's like learning great Greek history. Okay, you learn about something, and that requires a certain degree of intelligence. Then you can pass the exam, right? But when you go to the wisdom of thinking, now you're taking the teachings of Buddhism and you're relating it to your experience. Uh, in my experience, oh, this, this is mindfulness. I've got it. Ah, this is introspection. That's laxity. Oh, I see. This is called excitation. I've got it. Good, good. Ah, this is, this is a sense of ease. This is stability. Ah, now this, ah, this is what it means to balance. And so you're taking those teachings and now it's no longer something other. It's something other intertwined with your own experience, and the other is informing, illuminating, and deepening your own experience. But you're in a dialogue, you're in a dance with the Buddhist teachings. And then issues come up. Um, teacher, oh teacher, I was practicing, was this laxity or was that just something else? Was this, I had this experience, what was that? And then that's where you really start questioning, you're in dialogue with a teacher, with fellow Dharma students, so maybe have more understanding than you do. You get things cleared up, cleared up, cleared up, until you get really clear. So then you get the wisdom from thinking. It's that dance of Buddhism and your experience. And you get clear. And then you sit down, after really having mastered that, with your perceptiveness, the first of the three qualities, and you settle in, and then you are just settling your mind in its natural state. You're not thinking about Buddhism. You're not thinking about the relationship between your experience and Buddhism. Just, just doing the practice. Buddhism is gone now, in a way. It's, it's no longer an object. Buddhism is no longer an object. The Buddhist teachings are no longer an object. Your mind has become Dharma. One little Dharma, settling the mind as natural state. Now your mind is Dharma. Where's Buddhism? Where's Buddhism? It's like, where's Alan? I don't see Alan anywhere. Where's Alan? Alan used to be here. Where'd he go? Oh, oh I guess, oh, I must be Alan. Right? Where's Dharma? Where's Dharma? Where's Dharma? Oh, I'm settling my mind in the natural state. That's Dharma. My mind is Dharma. Oh, then I don't have to look elsewhere. I take refuge in Dharma. So that's the wisdom of meditation, where it's so inside that your mind has become Dharma. So that's lodin, perceptive. To be perceptive enough that you can really learn what the teachings are as an object. Perceptive enough that you can clearly, perceptively relate them to your own experience. So you're getting a good map and the teachings really are informing, deepening, unfolding your own experience. Perceptive enough that when you're doing the practice, you're doing it correctly. And you know when you're doing it correctly. And your mind is dharma. <laughs>
That's perceptive. Zurne. Zurne means abiding with abiding without prejudice, without bias. It really means objective. Objective not in the sense of subject and object, objective in the sense that not biased by one's presuppositions, assumptions, attractions, favorite ideas, my ideas, and so forth. Zurane means really the scientific ideal of objectivity, not in the sense of divorce from subject, but from divorce from subjective bias. That you hear something new and you're just open to it. Okay, what's the evidence? What's the reasoning? Dogs have chlorines? Do you say dogs have chlorines? Okay, well, that's an interesting idea. I've never heard that one before. What's the evidence? That, that's a good scientist. What's the evidence? And you see, the, you see if you see, look at the evidence, I'm saying, oh, but that's, that's really poor evidence. You didn't do this, you didn't do this. That's a really crummy experiment. I'm sorry, that's not evidence. That's really shoddy science. But nice try. Anybody? Do I, par parakeets, monkeys, uh, chimpanzees, mm, cockroaches, maybe there are some other species is clairvoyant, you know? But you have that openness, that inquisitiveness for something new, and then you check it out critically. Well, that's a good Buddhist. We hear about 18 hell realms. Well, really? What's the evidence? We hear about continuity of consciousness, that consciousness is not, not just a function of the brain. Oh, really? Why? What's the evidence? How can I test that? But first of all, what's the evidence? So we just listen to it with an open mind, very critical, but open, not just relying on our predilections, our previous assumptions, what everybody else thinks, what our mom and dad said, what the pastor of the church said, what the president of the university said, somebody else said. No, that's fine. Whatever they said is fine but we look at it with critical open mind. Open mind, that would be another one. Zurne, open mind, that's probably the best. With an open mind, even to unusual notions. You mean electrons, atoms don't really exist out there independent of measurement? Whoa, that's not how it appears to me. Why do you say that? What's the empirical evidence? And then Anton Seilinger will tell you, right? That's Zurne. But the hardest thing to be open about is open in the sense of really critical of one's own assumptions. It's so easy to be critical of other people's assumptions. Oh, incredibly easy, it's fun. Oh, you're wrong, 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 wrong. I'm right. <laughs> Shall we all say that together? And we can all point our fingers to other people. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. I'm, I'm right. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. I am right. <laughs> we can all sing that in harmony. You know, except for we'll be all wrong because <laughs> everybody else's fingers are going every which way. So there's nothing easier than that. But of course, the root of our own suffering is not other people's assumptions. That's the bottom line. The root of my suffering is not Darwin's assumptions. It's not Tsongkhapa's assumptions. It's not anybody else's assumptions at all. The root of my suffering is my delusion that I already brought to Buddhism, that I brought to science. That's the root of my suffering. I didn't get my suffering from science. I didn't get my suffering from Buddhism. I brought my own innate delusion. I, I just, I came out of my mom's womb and it, ah, I'm deluded, you know? First thing off. I'm deluded before my mom, mom ever said anything. So that's open-minded. And the third one is having a real yearning, having yearning, yearning to do what? put the teachings into practice. Not to learn about them. Not just get a PhD, write a lot of books, get tenure. Or make oneself famous as a teacher. Well, that's all that's kind of easy. But really, 
to really strive. I want to put this into practice. I want to test it for myself. I want to know for myself. I'm not going to go around, have you achieved shamatha? How did you do it? Have you realized emptiness yet? Oh, you've been practicing for six years. How have you done? Oh, have you re- blah, 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 blah. How do we know? Somebody else says, oh, I've achieved shamatha. How do you know? Maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're lying. Or maybe, then they say, no, I haven't achieved shamatha. Maybe they're being humble. So, how do we know? If they say yes, no, or maybe, how do we know? The answer is we don't. So, can shamatha be achieved? Only one way you're going to find out. Practice yourself. But then this raises the final point, and that is in this practice especially, subtly in the mind, for example, all kinds of things will come up. Can and will. We only have about two weeks left, but after this, more experiences will come up. Dreams, unusual dreams may come up. You may feel, oh, I think that dream was so vivid, I think it's a precognitive dream. That was so incredible, I think that was emptiness. I had this incredible sense of spaciousness and bliss, I think that was rikpa. I got really, really still. I think that's shamatha. I heard sounds from a far distance. I think that's clear audience. I think I'm really incredible. That's what I think. <laughs> What's that? It must be stream enterer, Aryabodhisattva, something up there. One fellow years ago, when I was in Switzerland, came to Geshe Rapten, my teacher, who was abbot of the monastery there, and he said, Geshila, I think I'm a Sambhogakaya. I think I'm a Sambhogakaya, but I don't have too much compassion. Sambhogakaya, okay. Sambhogakaya is the form of Buddha that appears to Arya Bodhisattvas and Buddhas. I think I'm a Sambhogakaya. I wanted to let you know. Uh, <laughs> but I don't have much compassion, and what do you think I should do? And Kesha and said, I think you should head out, out the front door and take a right. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really quiet way of, get lost. You're wasting my time. You're wasting my time. If you want to learn greater compassion, that's fine, I can help you. If you think you're a Sambhogakaya, and you really are, you can help me, but you can't have both. And I have nothing to tell you except for, go out and take a right. If you really want to take a left, that's, too, that's possible too. You know, it's your choice. So as soon as we try to start making sense of, categorizing, was this shamatha, was this vipassana, was this rikpa, Buddha nature, blah, 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 in a, in a way, we know our own experiences better than anybody else does, at least as far as we know. I mean, you have your experience, you, then you have the eyewitness account. But how does that map, or does it map, onto any of the great categories, the paths, the stages, the realizations within Buddhism? Well, you don't know that just by having your own experience and thinking it's really great, and then looking for something that's the closest match. And I can give you a close analogy. <coughs> No, I'm not asking for a concert. <laughs> <coughs> I've, got, I've got a bit of phlegm. <coughs> oh, what could it be? I don't know. I'll check out the internet. Coughs. I'm going to put coughs on the internet. Oh, boy. 17 million hits. Okay, what's my cough do? Ah, tuberculosis. I, I probably have tuberculosis. Oh, lung cancer. Oh, that's worse. I probably have tuberculosis and lung cancer. Oh, indigestion. Oh, I have tuberculosis and lung cancer and indigestion. Trying to self-diagnose on the internet. People make themselves sick that way. It's called the nocebo effect. <laughs> Literally, that's not a joke. It's called the nocebo effect, right? It's true. 
placebo effect is somebody gives you a sugar tablet and says this will make you feel better and you feel better. The nocebo effect is <coughs> and then checking out on the internet, identifying an illness, and lo and behold, you start coming down with the symptoms of that illness because you talked yourself into it by believing in it. Okay? So self-diagnosing your meditative experience, self-diagnosing a cough, let alone the prescription, the remedy, whether it's antibiotics or a consort, you know, trying to self-prescribe and self-medicate, it's very dicey. So that's the time you really want to go to a teacher. And say, this is my experience, as unelaborated, as unadorned, don't bring in the heavy-duty terminology, oh, by the way, I achieved shamatha, and then em emptiness realization, and then pristine awareness, and now, okay, really? Just keep it clean, keep it crisp, unadorned, unelaborated, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know? Don't elaborate. And if you'd really like to see how it maps onto Buddhism, ask somebody who's studied a lot. And if they've meditated a lot, too, all the better. But studying a lot at least gives them a clear understanding of what the words mean. And that really is something. That's not nothing. Okay? Oh, yeah. Let's jump in. Settle your body in its natural state with the three qualities, your respiration in its natural rhythm, unconstrained and unforced. For a little while, calm the mind. Calm the obsessive and composive flow of thinking with mindfulness of breathing.
let your eyes be open, bring the full force of mindfulness to the visual field, and the scene let it be just the scene. Close the eyes, direct the mindfulness to the auditory field. In the herd, let there be just the herd. Redirect your mindfulness to the field of the body, and in the felt, let it be just the felt.
now with your eyes at least partially open, but your gaze utterly vacant, resting in the space in front of you without focusing on anything, fully direct your mindfulness to the space of the mind. And whatever mental events arise therein, and in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
vessel. Most important in this practice is, the, is that you, remember, you memorize more intimately than your own birth date or address the quintessential instructions in just two phrases without distraction, without grasping. If you don't have that, you don't have the practice. If you have that, you have the essence of the practice. And it's a loaded, loaded phrase, without distraction, without grasping. So without distraction, the Tibetan is yengwa, which really exactly means distraction, but it's very closely related to another term, toa. You'll see this in the diagram that Glenn and I have had some exchange about. The diagram, the, the winding road of the elephant, the monkey, the, the, the monkey and the monk, and the rabbit. Uh, and when it refers to toa, which is literally dispersion, or scattering is not bad, but it just literally means to go out. So scattering is fine, dispersion of attention is fine. Then it comments there, because you'll see a big pile of fruit sens uh, symbolizing the five sensory fields, that when you're focusing on shamatha, dispersion is when your attention goes off to the five physical senses, any of the five, visual, auditory, and so forth. Right? So this is without distraction, without dispersion. Right. But then it's without grasping, which is to say not only are we not spraying our own categories, labels, I like, I don't like, this is mine, this is not mine, this is me, and so forth. Not only are we not doing that, but to the very best of our ability, we're not entering into any cognitive fusion with anything that appears in the mind. We're observing emotions arise without being absorbed by them. We observe thoughts and images without getting caught up in them. We observe desires arising, simply see them arising and passing, but not, I want this now because then the attention goes to the object of desire. Such a simple practice, and it's so almost unbelievably, prof unbelievably profound. What are we trying to do here? To view whatever comes up without editing, without preference, as if we're dispassionately observing somebody else's mind, like we're a scientist, just, well, I don't care what comes up. You know, like a scientist looking at a specimen, a tsetse fly. You know, well, what is it? Very objectively, oh, what, what? From what perspective, consider, from what perspective are we seeking to observe the mind? And by mind, I mean here, whatever is arising there, the images, the appearance, thoughts, emotions, desires. From what perspective are we seeking, doing our best, to observe the mind? From what perspective? Jacob. Just say anything. <laughs> if you're wrong, you're wrong. It's no big deal. This happens in debate. You, you, you're wrong, that's how you learn. But what, from what perspective are we seeking to observe our own minds? Exactly right. Substrate consciousness. That's exactly right. Not Rikpa, not Buddha nature, not somebody else. Exactly right. No other right answer. We are seeking to observe our own minds from the perspective of our own substrate consciousness, which is prelingual. No habla, no habla espanol. No speak English. You know, it doesn't speak any language at all. It's pre-language. But it's not stupid. It does know, but not by way of thoughts, not by way of language. It does know, but from a deeper level. It's like observing, if you're in a swimming pool, observing the bugs and the dust and the leaves and the junk floating around on the surface of the pool from the bottom of the pool. Whatever's there, you don't care. You just observe it. And the better we are at it, the more that is true. That is, maybe that, that is tautological. 
But the more familiar we become with the practice, then the more and more our perspective is indeed one of having settled the mind in its natural state and observing the mind from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. But in that process, the contents of the mind dissolve, 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 dissolve away until you're left with what, Jacob? The substrate. Yeah. The empty field, the substrate. Because all the stuff of your mind, thoughts, images, emotions, desires, vanished. Empty, three-dimensional, luminous field. I have posited, I may be wrong, but I'm very... If I'm wrong, I'm very confident in my wrong view. <laughs> that in Dzogchen, what is realized and is labeled as substrate consciousness is what in Theravada tradition is realized and is labeled as Bhavanga. I'm very confident of that. <coughs> the experience is the, thing, is the same. The interpretation, the context, can be somewhat different as soon as one starts talking about it and embedding it in one's Buddhist worldview. Theravada is not the same as Dzogchen, so they won't say the same thing exactly. Here's one difference that's interesting. Theravada. The Bhavanga, which is sometimes called life continuum, but that's not a close translation at all. It's often called that, but that's not what the words mean. I will stick with grounded becoming, because that's very close to Bhavanga. Bhavanga. Theravada view. When Javana, the activities of the mind, and that includes activities of the five physical senses, seeing, seeing pink, having thoughts, memories, and so forth. All the activities of the five physical senses and the mind. Javana, you remember the term. When Javana is present, Bhavanga is not. It's not manifest. Nowhere to be found. So like a seesaw. When Javana, when Javana is evident, Bhavanga isn't. When Bhavanga is evident, Javana aren't. So in deep sleep, Kamatos, dead, Shamata, access, first Jhana. Bhavanga, yes, Javana, no. Waking state, dreaming, hallucinating, bardo, javana is active, bhavana, nowhere in sight. One or the other, not both. Very phenomenological, very radically phenomenological. Savastavadan, another of the 18 schools, isn't it? Early Buddhism. And by the way, was it 400 or was it Mahayana Sutta Alankara, the three qualities of the disciple? I'm sure it's Lama Mshyama, that I'm absolutely sure of. And I'm just trying to remember whether it's Mahayana Sutra Ankala or 400. I think it's one of the two, yeah. In any case, whether it's from Maitreya by way of Asanga or whether it's Ayadeva, these are solid gold five-star sources. Yeah, could, could well be. But if it's, of course, Mahayana Sutra Ankala, it's one of the five treatises of Maitreya. Correct? Oh, yeah. In any case, I mean, impeccable source. And it's, and it's really quite marvelous. Now... Back to Savastavadana, one of the 18 early schools. Savastavadana also accepts Bhavanga, but they say, no, uh, you know, you're not quite right there. It's not the case that Bhavanga is just not present whenever a Javana is arising, but rather the Bhavanga is that from which the Javana arise. And it is there as they are rising, but as the Javana, the activities of the mind arise, they tend to catch our attention. And therefore we don't see the Bhavanga. Just like when the sun comes out, we don't see the stars anymore, but the stars are still there. So because of our fixation on objects, our reification, because they're so much more obvious than Bhavanga, we don't see the Bhavanga, it's not so evident, but it's still there because the Bhavanga is that out of which all these subjective mental processes are emerging. So it's a different view. Let's, that's ma microcosm. Let's go macrocosm. Ready? Put on your seatbelt. Polycanon, the polycanon. 
ubiquitous view. Utterly embraced, unquestioned, I think, in the Theravada tradition, is that stream enterer was realized nirvana, once returned and non-returner and arhat. For all of these individuals, for as long as they for as long as they are alive, they may indeed, on at least on occasion, like the stream enterer, realize nirvana. It is a realization of nirvana, the unconditioned. They are. They're realizing with a conditioned mind. There's no question of that. It's a conditioned mind. They're realizing with vijnana, mana vijnana, mental consciousness, which is conditioned. But they're realizing with a conditioned mind the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated nirvana. Right? And they realize it again as a stream enterer, realize it again as once returner, non returner, arhat. Now their realization of, of nirvana has completely purified their mind of all klesha. And then they die. Parinirvana. Parinirvana for the arhat. Only after death, only after the total and irreversible termination of all five skandhas, including the continuum of conditioned mental consciousness. The guillotine has come down. Absolute termination of your individual conditioned mental consciousness. Finito. Because it was causing and generated by previous karma and klesha. Finito. Finished totally. Right? Only then can you realize unconditioned consciousness. And it's unconditioned consciousness realizing the unconditioned in a non-dual, inconceivable way. In a similar fashion, and this is very developmental, very Theravada, very developmental approach. Songoba's approach also very deliberately, with fantastic brilliance, very, very developmental. So in the Tsongkhapa's interpretation, and of course he's got a great heritage behind him, he didn't just make this up. When we speak of the innate mind of clear light, the very subtle mind, is that manifest when your coarse mind is active? I want this, I don't like that, yeah, 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 yeah. Is it manifest? No. Nowhere to be found. That's why through the state of regeneration, state of completion, it was very, very demanding practice. You need to bring all the pranas into the central channel, into the heart chakra, into the indestructible drop. And in that way, the coarse prana dissolves into subtle prana, dissolves into very subtle prana, coarse mind into subtle mind, into very subtle mind, only then does very subtle mind manifest. That's when, when the very subtle mind manifests. That's when the subtle mind and coarse mind are nowhere to be found. It's a seesaw. When the innate mind of clear light manifests, coarse mind, subtle mind, nowhere in sight. Subtle mind, coarse mind manifest, very subtle mind, nowhere in sight. Sisa, like Theravada. That's why you have to bring all those energies into the indestructible bindu at the heart before the very subtle mind manifests. Right? The innate mind of clear light. Dzogchen says, not from our perspective. <laughs> and that is even before you are a very highly accomplished practitioner on stage of completion. Through our practices of shamatha, vipassana, and tekchut, even while the coarse mind is active, coarse mind, let alone subtle mind, even while the coarse mind is active, even while your senses are still open, you can realize rikpa. And you realize it by realizing that all these appearances to your mental awareness, to all five physical senses, are themselves rikpetzel. They are creative effulgences, displays of rikpa. They do not obscure rikpa, they are displays of rikpa. Parallel to, not the same, parallel to Savastavadan. Coarse mind, javana, 
doesn't obscure bhavanga. There are displays of bhavanga. Relative level, ultimate level. And so Dzogchen, without having to totally shut down the whole system, with open presence, Rikpa Choksha, just letting be, resting in Rikpa, your awareness present to all appearances. You may simultaneously realize Rikpa and the creative displays of Rikpa, settling, 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 settling. Then eventually you'll come to a state. Oh, chunye zepe, chunye zepe nawa. The appearance in which all phenomena dissolve into dhammata. All phenomena, subject, object, everything, dissolves into dhammata, ultimate reality. And there's no vestige of conventional reality, relative truth, anywhere in sight. It's just rikpa realizing dhammata, emptiness, dhammadatu. Then there's no tsel, there's no creative displays, it's just straight what an arhat experiences after death. Oh, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it sounds interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> Enjoy your day. <laughs>